Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. If you're a guest, we're, we're delighted that you're here. You're here on our first Sunday of this new series on, on Advent. We hope you'll join us for the rest of the month. If you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're grateful that you have tuned in as well, and we invite you to, to come and be a part of this uh, during this whole season. Advent means arrival. We talk about the advent of the automobile or we talk about the advent of the cell phone as moments in time when they arrived on the scene and changed history. In the context of a spiritual discussion, Advent describes that moment in time when God became one of us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and changed all of history. Now, if you were going to take the, uh, the Old Testament and sum it up in one word, I, I think, or maybe two words... I think the best word or phrase is hopeful anticipation. All through the Old Testament, God keeps saying, I've got a plan. Trust me, it's coming. You watch for my arrival or my advent. I've got your back. And so all through the Old Testament, God keeps pointing to his coming, which would change everything. When Adam and Eve in the garden realized that they had sinned and the devastating results of those sin, God was quick to say, I've got a plan and I'm going to send a person. And that person would be his son, Jesus Christ. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God made the promise that one of their descendants would become a blessing to the entire world. Through Job, God promised us that nothing is really hopeless. Through the deliverer, Moses, God promised that he would send an even greater deliverer. Through King David... God promised that he would send an even greater king. Through the prophet Elijah, God promised that he would send even a greater prophet. The entire Old Testament, folks, is about the anticipation of hope in what is coming. And so we look back to how God fulfilled that marvelous plan. In times of war or crisis situations, medical personnel uses what is called triage, which means a sorting out, and they will tag a person who is hopeless because they're not going to expend energy on somebody they're pretty sure is going to die anyway. Then there are those who have been injured, but they're not in a life-threatening situation, and so they're put off to the side until treatment can be given later because they're not in any threat. It's that person in the middle, the person who is hanging between life and death, that the medical person says, this person needs immediate help. And because limited supplies are always limited in such situations, that's the person who gets treated first. During World War II, Lou had sustained severe injuries. He'd been blown apart, including one severely wounded leg. And the doctor quickly looked at him and tagged him hopeless. He was not going to get any medical care. But one of the nurses that was working there in the mass unit noticed that uh, Lou was actually conscious through all of this pain. He was conscious. So she went over and began a conversation with him. He stayed conscious through this time. They found out they were both from Ohio. They talked. They found out they had other things in common. And this nurse did the unthinkable. She changed the tag. She changed what the doctor had written. She could not bear the thought of Lou not being able to get the treatment that he so rightly deserved. And so she changed his tag from hopeless to hopeful. A two-day ride in the back of a truck, many weeks in the hospital, Lou recovered. Married a girl that he met while he was in the hospital, lived a wonderful, full life, all because one nurse went against the rules and changed the tag from hopeless to hopeful. 
That's exactly what God did when he entered this world. He changed the earth's tag from hopeless to hopeful. Satan had tagged us hopeless. Jesus changed the tag to restore our hope. And he's challenged us to do the same thing. Part of our job in this world is to go out with the message of hope to a hopeless world and say, your tag is wrong. Let us help you find the one who can change everything. Now, folks, I, I really believe that hope is the foundation for this whole concept of Advent. It's, it's the basis or the foundation on which all the rest of them build. Without hope, there is no peace, there is no joy, there is no love. Hope keeps us anchored to our faith on the high seas of doubt. Hope keeps us going when we want to give up. Hope fills us with confidence when everything else around us seems so uncertain. God is trying to convince us throughout the whole Old Testament. I've got your back. Don't lose hope. I've got a plan. I'm coming. There's a great story in the book of 2 Kings. This is one of my favorite stories in, in the book of 2 Kings that highlights this truth that we must never give up on God no matter how bleak and bad things seem to be. Now, the city of Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. This was after the nation of Israel had divided. You have the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria is the capital. And the, and the northern kingdom is always, they're always at war with, uh, with the Aramean army. Now, I don't know why, uh, but, the, but the Arameans were a thorn in the side of the Hebrews. And on this particular occasion, the Bible doesn't say what the, what the war was about but just simply that the Aramean army had laid siege to the city of Samaria and cut them off from everything. This went on for such a long time that circumstances in the city of Samaria became utterly desperate. To give you an idea, a donkey's head that would be sold for food, sold for about $170. A half pint of dove's dung, which would either be used for food or fuel, sold for $11. It gets worse. Two women made an agreement. I even hate to relate this story. They made an agreement. The one said, we'll eat my son today. We'll eat your son tomorrow. The first woman kept her bargain, and they feasted on her son. The second day, the other woman refused, and she hid her son so that he might live. And the first woman goes to the king. She is indignant, and she asks the king not for mercy for doing something dastardly, not for grace and forgiveness for doing something so horrible. She asks for justice. Make the other woman keep her end of the bargain. That's how desperate things had gotten in the city of Samaria. And King Joram, even though he knew about God, was not a follower of God, did not believe in God, did not listen to the prophet of God. And so he did the only thing that a king like that could do, and that is he cursed God. Isn't it interesting? We don't want God a part of our lives. We don't want God a part of our culture. We don't want God a part of our, uh, of our society. And so we, we try to get him out of everything until we need somebody to blame, and then he becomes the handy person to blame. And so King Joram, the only, the only hope the city had was what God was up to. And King Joram, instead of coming to God, turns his back on God. What I want you to see here this morning is the utter hopelessness of this situation. I mean, it can't get any worse. Even for believers in the city of Samaria, that is, there is this feeling that God had abandoned them. But it was not so. God's timing was everything. 
did the king deserve God's mercy? Well, of course not. Did the actions, the appalling actions of the people call forth God's grace? Not in a chance. But God was about to do something that was beyond their imagination. They could not conceive what God was about to do. So God sent the prophet Elisha with this message to the people. And we begin in chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha replied, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, five quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver. What? They hadn't seen flour for, for weeks, maybe months. And that much is going to sell for one piece of silver. And the, uh, and the 10 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. And the officer assisting the king said to the man of God, Ha! That couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, You will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. The king's officer makes a fatal misjudgment. No way, no how. Not if God opens up the windows of heaven is this a possibility. Oh, be ever so careful when you stand against a promise of God. It's never wise to find yourself on the opposite side of the word of God. It may not make sense at times. Life may not be so clear as for us to figure out how it's all going to work out. God's, God's word may seem at times to defy human logic. But if God makes a promise, trust me, he will keep it. And that's our hope. God's word never fails. Don't find yourself on the opposite side of the word of God. And that kind of hope, the fact that God never fails in a promise, is worth sharing. I love to be around people who are talking hopefully. Don't you? I mean, I don't even have to know what the situation is. And there doesn't have to be anything going wrong in my life. If I'm around somebody and they're having a hopeful conversation, I'm just kind of lifted up. I'm encouraged by hope. That's the power of hope. And when other people handle their crisis moments with hope, then I am challenged and encouraged to handle my crisis moments with that same hope in God. You see, just when everything was feeling utterly hopeless, that that the city of Samaria was teetering on whether it would survive or it would collapse on itself from the inside. God does the amazing. And, And are you ready for this? God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish it. There are four lepers, uh, and this is where they end the story. Four lepers who are the outcasts of society, who finally come to this conclusion. They say to themselves, you know what? We're going to die one way or another. So maybe let's take a chance. Let's slip out of the city walls. Let's approach the camp of the Arameans. Let's surrender to them. And maybe if they have mercy, we'll get food. If not, they'll kill us, but we're going to die inside the city anyway. What do we have to lose. I like these lepers. They're dying men in search of hope. Aren't we all? Aren't we all dying people in search of hope? Well, as they approach the camp of the Arameans, it is eerily quiet. The tents are still there. There's campfires built around. I I have a suspicion there may have been even the smell of food. Because you see what they did, they slipped out at dusk. 
And, and so it may have been supper time in the camp. You would probably wait till evening, till the guard goes down, till night begins to fall. And so they may have smelled all this food cooking, but there is no sound. There's not a peep. So when they finally get up the courage, they slip into camp, and lo and behold, there's not a soldier in sight. Every one of the Arameans has fled, and the Bible says they fled because of their fear, and their fear was the result of the sound of approaching armies. Are you ready for this, what commentators think? <laughs> this, this, this gives you insight into the humor of God, all right? <clears throat> the very wording of the text, the very timing of the fact that they fled at dusk just as the lepers left the city walls at dusk and are making their way toward the Aramean camp, that the insinuation of the words here suggests that God multiplied the sound of the footsteps of these four lepers to make the Arameans think that the Hittite army was coming down upon it and they ran in fear. These four lepers had no idea they were going to be the rescuers of a city that was about ready to collapse. And so they get to the camp <clears throat> And they, and they finally go in, and, um, and what, would, what would you expect them to do if you're starving? And supper's being cooked, and nobody's there to eat it. You would just, you'd dig in, and, and that's what they did. You know, I, I think that this is just an utterly amazing point in time that God uses four outcasts. The last four people you would expect to make any difference in this whole scenario. But that's, that's what God has always done. God has always used the lowly among us. Some, I, I hear people say something, well, I don't, I'm not trained, I'm not equipped, I don't have this, I don't have that. I, you know, how could God use me? Well, if you feel insignificant, may I suggest to you this morning that you're at the top of God's usable list? Because God uses people who aren't out for the glory, who aren't necessarily talented, who could perhaps brag about the fact that it was their skill that got it accomplished. God is looking for the person who says, what can God do with me? God says, I can do plenty. With four lepers, I scared off an entire army. God has always been using the insignificant. There was an unnamed widow that, that kept Elijah alive during the drought. It was a lowly shepherd that took down the giant Goliath. It was another nameless widow that taught us how to give sacrificially when she put her two penny-like coins in the treasury at the temple in Jerusalem, all that she had. It was God that used a, a, a prostitute in the city of Jericho named Rahab to ultimately save the nation of Israel. He used a second-class tax collector named Zacchaeus to teach us about forgiveness and restoration. And he used a poor, lowly carpenter named Joseph and his fiancée, Mary, to become the parents of his own son in this world. God loves surprises. And nothing was more surprising than four lepers finding an empty camp. You know, God does it sometimes just backwards. The last shall be first. He who would be the greatest must become a servant. Don't go just one mile. You go two miles. Don't lose heart if you think God couldn't use you. He may be getting you ready for the most hopeful, surprising moment of your entire life. If he can use four lepers to scare off an army, what can he do with you? Well, these lepers started feasting on all the goods there. And then it, came, it kind of came to their senses. It dawned on them what they were doing. And in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9, it says, Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. And we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this to the royal palace. 
These guys had put up with all kinds of guff through the years from other people. They could have made off with all the spoils of the battle and lived as wealthy men for the rest of their lives, but they are struck with the fact there's a whole city back there that is about to fall upon one another and kill each other and die in the process, and here we sit among this bounty. So they went back to the palace. They told the king, the gates fly open. The whole city of Samaria pours out. It's a stampede out of the gates. And guess who's standing right in the doorway? The officer of the king who said, there is no way if God opens up the windows of heaven, all this is going to go. And he heard the news. The gates open up. He gets stampeded. Dies in the process. I'm telling you, You don't want to be on the opposite side of God's word and promises. Do not dismiss the word of God. His truth endures forever. He specializes in the impossible. If you know him, life is never hopeless. And some of you are saying, yeah, but I wish God would do those kinds of things today. Oh, who says he stopped doing these kinds of things? Lynn Camp relates a story that he witnessed Back during the era of the Cold War, it happened in 1961 in Vienna, Austria. A fellow by the name of Ivan Martos, who worked as an officer of the National Bank of Hungary, customarily traveled twice a year to Vienna for a banking conference. And he'd have to go back into Hungary, which was under uh, communist rule at that day and time. It was, it was also during these times when he would come to Vienna that while he came for this national banking conference, he also met with Christian leaders that would help him, resource him, uh, encourage him for his clandestine ministry under communist rule. They said that Ivan was always upbeat. Didn't matter what was going on in Hungary. Ivan, when he showed up in Vienna, was just always upbeat. But on this one day in 1961, when he got off the train at the train station, he was just, they could tell he was just broken, um, visibly shook. And Ivan wouldn't even let him leave the train platform until he told him the story. He said he was on his way, everything was going well. The second to the last stop in Hungary, right before the border, uniformed guards got on and they started examining everybody's papers. They got to Ivan. He pulled out his papers and all his papers were in order and, the, and, and they knew he was headed to this conference that he was an important man in the National Bank in Hungary. But one of the guards said, I want to see your briefcase opened up his briefcase, and even though his papers were in order, he still searched the briefcase, and right there on top was Ivan's best friend, his Bible. Only one he had. They were rare because they'd been banned and destroyed in the communist regime and takeover. The guard held up the Bible, and he says, you, a man of your position, what are you doing with a Bible? And he threw it out the window of the train, and Ivan, Ivan knew he'd never see that Bible again. He was distraught through that whole meeting. Now, fast forward two years, 1963. Just a few days before Ivan leaves Budapest for another one of these national meetings, a package arrived in the mail for him. He did not recognize the return address, but when he opened it, there was his Bible with a letter of apology and an explanation. And this is how the letter went. Some of our children were playing one day along the railroad tracks. They found your Bible, not knowing what it was. One of them took it to his grandmother, who immediately recognized it as the Bible. 
Word spread quickly through the little village on the border. Some of our older people had possessed Bibles before they were banned and remembered the significance and the power of the Word of God. So we decided to conceal the discovery while those who wanted to made handwritten copies. That joyful task lasted two years. Please forgive our keeping your Bible so long, but you might like to know that we are now a secret band of about 30 who have baptized each other and seek to follow Jesus Christ every day of our lives. Well, Tom's let me speak here a couple of times. Usually he's away at his fancy vacation house in the Bahamas, but... Uh... I told that joke at 8 o'clock and someone came afterwards and said, does he do a timeshare on that? Can, will he, can we rent that from him? <laughs> He'd be happy to rent you that and sell you the Brooklyn Bridge as well. I love that story about the lepers. I like them as well. I like people who, even in the most desperate circumstances, have that faint little glimmer of hope you can st still see. People who don't ho have that um, are just hopeless, and that's not who we're called to be. Hopelessness stems from this idea that nothing that we can do will actually change anything. It's being in the middle of the ocean with no support or uh, safety in sight. It's being feeling abandoned by everything that you know and love and being just out there now, some people embrace that. In fact, there's a, there's a few religions that sort of believe that the height of enlightenment is just to surrender to the inevitability of life. William Shakespeare said this, all the world is a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. I don't know if he was talking about that sort of fatalism, but it dis, does point to the idea that we are merely puppets in the hands of fate. Well, I'm here to tell you that Christians don't believe that. Christians reject that idea entirely. We pray, we give, we sin, we share, we live, and we die because we believe that we can change history. We can impact human lives. We can leave this world better by our influence. We believe, hence we're called believers, that God and not some faceless fate is in charge of our lives. When I say God is in charge, I always have people look at me like, really? I mean, have you seen the state of the world recently? There's a lot of crazy out there. Is God really in charge of it? Yes, I believe God is in charge. He is in control. Now, do I believe God is controlling everyone? Nope, I don't. I believe we've been given an amazing gift in free will. And so most of the messes, in fact, let's just say it, all of the messes we see in this world are our fault, not God's. But I believe God is still in control. Let me, let me explain it this way. When I was a kid, you know what? Let's use my sisters. We used me in the other services, and they were as bad as I was. My sisters were slobs. I mean, girls are worse than boys when it comes to slobbiness. And my sisters were, were the peak of slobbiness. And my mother would come into their rooms and she would say, this room is out of control. You better clean it up. Now, my sister's room was out of control, but no one in that house doubted for a minute that mom was in control. She was gonna make it happen. 
it was going to happen under her watch. And if it didn't happen under her watch, she would point us to a higher power. Get it done before dad gets home. God is in control. Romans 8, 28 says this. We know that in all things, God works for the good. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Then let's read this together, Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We believe that God is good and that he can be trusted to work out everything in accordance with his perfect plan. And if God is for us, who dare have the temerity, the audacity to stand against the Lord's anointed, his children? These last couple of weeks, I've seen people lose their heads and their faith and their hope over a crazy thing like an election that comes around every four years. Now, maybe you're thrilled with the outcome of that election, but if for you it's something else, I bet. Maybe it's Syrian refugees or racial strife or ah, the economy or Christmas. I don't know. What's it going to be? Valentine's Day is enough to make us all a nervous wreck. <laughs> I'm going to promise you this, that until Jesus comes back and establishes his holy, just, and righteous, perfect kingdom, there's always going to be a mess someplace. There's always going to be a crisis. There's always going to be a room somewhere that's out of control. A couple years back, I was over at Barnes & Noble, and I, I saw this book on the, uh, on the counter. The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Anyone familiar with this book? <laughs> Anyone like me just skimmed through it just to see if their own internal fears were justified and someone else had written about them? So this book has sold over 10 million copies. It spawned a series of related books, games, and even a television show. It talks about things like how to survive a tornado, how to survive a shark attack, how to emergency land an airplane. Let's be honest, a lot of those things we're never really going to encounter. My brain loves to think up worst-case scenarios. All it takes is for my office buzzer to go off and Donna say, hey, Tom wants to see you in his office. <laughs> and I imagine a dozen worst-case scenarios, all of them involving me looking for a new place to work. <laughs> but I'm still here, praise the Lord. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that you bury your head and you ignore all the stuff that could possibly go wrong. We're not called to do that. But we approach problems with a different attitude. Remember the king who raised his fist and cursed God? We raise our hands and bless God. We approach problems with the attitude of faith and trust in a word, hope. Hope, the real kind, not, not based on wishful thinking, but based on certain and eternal truths. The solid foundation of God's word and the promises he makes to us in it. Jesus says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Our hope is not just somewhere out there, that distance sometime in heaven. Our hope is right here. It includes heaven, but it's much more comprehensive than that. 
You know, I was thinking about how to, how to, how to share my hope with someone else, and I was trying to encapsulate it into a way that makes sense, and so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just offering this for your consideration. Here's how I sum up my hope. God is continually at work in me and around me, in things seen and in things unseen, in things perfect and as yet imperfect, to bring about his ultimate glorious plan for me and this world. Colossians 1.19 says this about Jesus. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. And through Jesus, to reconcile to God all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That verse gives me a reason for my hope. I can be hopeful knowing that in every in each and every situation, God is working to reconcile the broken parts of this world back to himself, to bring them back in alignment with his plan and his purpose. So in every frightful situation, I do not start stockpiling food and filtered water and gold. Instead, we go to our knees. We cast our burdens on the Lord where we are reminded that he is in control. And when God is in control, I can have hope. Here's the amazing thing. This hope, this hope that we have, becomes our own testimony, a way to share our faith with our friends, our coworkers, our family. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. Could you do that? If someone asks you the reason for the hope that you have in you, maybe this morning you say, man, I, I want to, but I'm not feeling very hopeful right now. So I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. Think through with me on this. Number one, here's what I want you to do. I want you to confess your fear and anxiety to God. I believe fear and anxiety are a sin. Here's why. For 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, the spirit that God gives us doesn't make us fearful, but it gives us power, love, and self-control. So if you're feeling anxious and fearful, confess that to the Lord. And then repent of looking to the wrong places for your hope. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's not found in elections. I will tell you that right now. Straight up. Our hope is not found in people. Our hope is found in God. The psalmist wrote this. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then we go to our knees and we cast our cares on him because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 basically says that. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And then I believe you will get up off of your knees with strength to face the future. Isaiah 40, 31 says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I love that image of that eagle soaring. Well-placed hope keeps us strong and moving in the right direction, whether we're soaring like an eagle, running like those 
Olympic athletes, or just walking like I do mostly, hope keeps us moving in the right direction. One of my favorite hymns, my dad's favorite hymn actually, the last verse says this, there's strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. You see where I'm going with this? Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. And our hope is placed in God because great is thy faithfulness.